Uh, so as Matt said, I work, I don't really work, I volunteer for the Sword of the Spirit. Okay, let me share with you then a few thoughts on holiness. My outline's pretty simple. Just want to talk about a few things about the journey of holiness, the journey to become holy as part of our core identity. Talk about some challenges and tensions that arise within us as we're on that journey. And then a few thoughts on uh, what then should we do? How then shall we live? All right. Well, our identity as saints. First question we could ask, why, why be holy? Why is that important? Why is that worth talking about here for you know, some time this evening? What's so important about it? Why, why put effort into it? And I think for most of us, or many of us, we think about that question, we think the, the question of why, why be holy? I think the natural human response is to say, well, I want to be holy so that God will love me, right? so God will accept me, that I can come into, that he'll, he'll accept me, he'll love me. And when I'm having a good week and I feel holy, I feel like God loves me. Right? When I'm having a bad week and I don't feel holy as holy, ah, I don't feel God's love. Anybody ever experience this? Am I the only one? Come on, people, work with me. More holy, more love. Right? Don't we think that way? Well, as a good friend of mine likes to say, that comes from the pit and it smells like smoke. Right? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We love because he first loved us. We've been saved by grace. So that whole transaction of I need to be holy so that God will love me is not wisdom from above. It's by faith we have been saved. It's a gift. So if holiness is not a prerequisite to God's love, it's not something we have to do to earn God's love. Again, why are we doing this? What's, what's the point of being holy? I think the most helpful way to think about this is that it's rooted in God's desire to have us with him. It's rooted in God's desire to have us with him. God wants us to be holy so that we can be with him and enjoy him. Lost a page here in my outline. There it is. Now hear me well. I'm not talking about our desire to be with him because our desire to be with him comes and goes, it flags. But his desire for us to be with him. Well, why? Why does he want us to be with him? You can see I'm an engineer. I ask these questions over and over. Well, you all remember Quaker Oats? And the cherubic Quaker guy on the little round box. 
You'll remember, so what was the product he was selling? Oatmeal, oatmeal. What was the tagline for Quaker Oats? Anybody know that? Am I, am I like an old guy that knows this? Nothing is better for thee than me. Remember that? No? Jane, Gordy, come on, work with me. Holy cow, it's, my whole talk is built around this. <laughs> Nothing is better for thee than me. Nothing is better for thee than me. Now, this is oatmeal. And we're talking about a breakfast cereal. <laughs> you kind of want to grab the, the Quaker guy and say, have you ever had coffee? <laughs> yeah. Or how about chocolate, Quaker guy? You know? Really? Oatmeal? That's the best thing you can come up with? Well, obviously, with breakfast cereal, this is, this is arrogance. This is hubris. Nothing is better for me than oatmeal. But with God, it's absolute truth. God says to us, nothing is better for thee than me. God wants us to be with him so that we can enjoy him forever. And to do that, to be fit company, we need to be made holy. And as we think about this holiness, brothers and sisters, we need to see that, that, that holiness of God that he wants to bring us into is something beyond our understanding. In the scripture, the scriptural languages, they didn't have superlatives, right? In, in English, we have good, better, best, right? It's the superlative progression. In the scripture, they didn't have that kind of uh, grammar. So they would use repetition. So you see Jesus say something like, truly, truly, I say to you. And I'm like, this is really important, pay attention. But when the scripture talks about holiness, God's holiness, it doesn't say that God is holy. It doesn't say that God is holy, holy. It says God is holy, holy, holy. It's a threefold repetition. That means in the scriptures is it's a holiness that's so far beyond our comprehension, so far beyond our speech. God is holy beyond all our imagining. And if you think you understand the holiness of God, let me suggest you're sadly mistaken. It's beyond you, gloriously so. You know, I don't think any of us will get to heaven. You know, we walk into heaven and say, yeah, pretty much what I was expecting. <laughs> yeah. Thought there'd be a few more angels, but the sound system's great, you know. 
we will fall on our faces and say, I had no idea about the holiness of God. I had no idea. I don't care how holy you are. When we see the holiness of God, we'll be blown away. Blown away. So God says, I want you to be with me. Nothing is better for thee than me. And so I need you to raise your game to become holy. So holiness, not because to earn God's love, but so that we may enter into his presence and enjoy him forever. Okay, second thing I want to say. Uh, holiness is a process. It's a process thing. We need to see that we're in a process of being made holy. And I think this is really an important concept. How is it that God goes about making us holy? How does, that, how does that work? You know, there's lots of ways God could do that. One of the neat things about being omnipotent and omniscient, being all-powerful, God can do whatever he wants, right? He could make us holy just like that. He could snap his fingers and make it so. Speak a word and it happens. But my observation is that God chooses a process approach to making us holy. An example from the business world. Uh, one way you could divide up companies, there are two kinds of companies, process-oriented companies and results-oriented companies. So a results-oriented company says, you know, I don't care how you get it done, just get it done. Right? Get her done. I don't care how you do it, just get her done. That's a results-oriented company. Process-oriented company says something like, we'll just work the process and good results will happen. Right? Work the process. In the automotive industry that I worked in, Toyota was the exemplar of this. Very, very process-oriented company. And they had a saying in Toyota, if you go to the Toyota headquarters in Tokyo, they'll have a, their, their tagline uh, above the door. It says, Ordinary people, exceptional process. Ordinary people, exceptional process. And that's how they run that company. And I've worked for both kinds of managers. I, I had managers who were very results-oriented and more process-oriented. I worked for this one guy one time. He was a Navy SEAL. So fairly intense individual. I really liked him. He was a good guy. But, um, and he was really trying to be process-oriented. But deep in his black heart, he didn't care how I got it done. <laughs> right. He just wanted the results. <laughs> I'll never forget this one time, I was, I was running a project and we were having problems with this one department. And uh, he, he always thought I was way too laid back, I was too easy going, so he's always trying to buck me up, you know? And uh, so he, he turned to me and said, Dave, he said, the next time my phone rings, I want it to be from the secretary of the leader of that department asking me to have you take your hands from around his throat. 
And everything in me wanted to cry out, so John, what part of the process is this, right? Where we strangle our employees, you know? They don't do what we say. That doesn't have a lot to do with my talk, but it's a good story. <laughs> but sisters, our God is a process God. You know the song? Our God is a process God. <laughs> yeah. He works through process. Sinful people, really, really exceptional processes. Right, to make us holy. Now, why, why is this important? Why am I taking time to talk about this? Well, I think if we miss this point, it can be very frustrating. Life can get very frustrating. If we don't see God has us in a process to make us holy. We want to be at the goal. Right? I want to be holy and I want it now. Right? I, I just want to, I just, please God, just make it so. And in fact... He has us in a process of making us holy. So it's a process, and it's primarily his work, and we are not in control of the process. Do I sound like a corporate nerd? A little bit? It'll get worse. Just, just hang with me here. It's mainly his work. We're not in control of the process. You know, and I think, again, here we, we tend to miss this, right? We tend to think, well, we're the main actors in the process. Becoming holy is mainly, mainly our thing. And if we're driven people, I mean, I'm a pretty driven kind of a guy. I want to grind at that and make it happen, get it to go. We drive ourselves to be holy. And one way you could look at my life, my life is something like an endless set of self-improvement programs. Right? I launch them all the time, an endless series of self-improvement programs. But the reality is we're, we're in a process, it's not in our control, and God is driving the bus. And just to open it up, I want to look at a, a passage that's it's one of my favorite passages in Scripture. It's one that's probably very familiar with you as well from Isaiah 6. It's where human man encounters the holiness of God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, that threefold repetition. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, says Isaiah. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, See, 
This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. It's a great passage. It's, it's, it's amazing imagery, isn't it? Here's Isaiah. He comes in and he's in the presence of the Lord. And he sees the holiness of God. And it's, it's, it's just a very striking imagery. Well, let's just kind of unpack it a little bit, untangle it. So who's doing what in the story, right? Who's, who's, who's doing what? Who's the, the actors in the story? Well, first let's look at Brother Isaiah. Where's Brother Isaiah? Isaiah is a puddle on the floor. Right? Isaiah is a puddle on the floor. He says, I am ruined. It's a very interesting word. In other translations, it talks about, I am undone. I am disintegrated. The fullness of who I am has come apart. I am ruined. It's a very, very strong word. Woe, woe to me. Now, we can read that and think, well, you know, poor brother Isaiah, you know, maybe he had some self-image issues or dealing with some sin he hadn't repented of or something, you know. But if I was there, right, if I was in the presence of the Lord, <laughs> I'd be praising the Lord and jumping around. And here I think we need to see the reality. When we encounter the holiness of God, we are undone. All right, we are ruined, and we realize the incredible gap between our own holiness and His. Who then takes the initiative? Who resolves the problem? Well, of course, God does, doesn't He? He sends the seraphim with the live coal. We have some good friends in Detroit who run an art gallery. This woman runs an art gallery. And the name of her art gallery is Live Coal. Live Coal Gallery. And uh, so what, what does that mean, Live Coal? Well, it's, it's hot, right? It's, it's burning. Well, how hot is it? How hot is this coal? It's so hot. The angels can't even touch it, right? The angel has to take tongs and pick this coal up. And this is where the imagery gets really striking, right? He takes this super hot coal that he can't even touch, and he comes over to Brother Isaiah and puts it right on his lips, the most sensitive part of your body. And what's the result? Well, the coal is actually cool. It's healing. The, 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 the coal transforms Isaiah, takes away his sin, atones for him. It's a great passage. We could spend all night on it. I could spend all night on it. All I want us to see here is in the reality of this process of becoming holy, who takes the initiative? Who's really moving it along? It's God himself. And sometimes we think, oh, again, man, <laughs> I, if I was there, I, you know, I'd go up there and kiss that coal. Right? I can do this. I can, I can uh, 
launch one more self-improvement program, and I'm sure the next one will, you know, it'll get the job done. But again, brothers and sisters, God is in charge of the process. He takes the initiative. It's his work to do. Now, hear me well. I'm not saying we don't have a role to play. I'm not saying we don't participate. There's a lot for us to do. We participate in this process that God has us in. But he is the live coal. He takes the initiative and he gets it done. So part of the way we need to think about our lives that we're in a process, not under our control, to be made holy so that we can be with God and enjoy him forever. We're being made into saints. All right, I want to talk now about a few tensions we face in this process. And say there's tensions without, tensions within and tensions without. Look briefly at each one of them. First, the tensions within. I know that I am not as holy as I want to be. Right? This is the normal human condition. Especially for those of us who want to follow the Lord. We want to be holy. But we have this tension. We know that we're not as holy as we'd like to be. High aspirations and then some lower realities. And again, it's the normal human condition. And each of us has in our lives what I call the usual suspects. You remember the movie Casablanca? Please tell me you do. I'm really feeling old otherwise. Remember the, the, the great scene at the end of Casablanca and who is it, Bogart says, you know, round up the usual suspects to the French lieutenant. We all have the usual suspects in our lives, right? The, those areas of struggle and, and, and problem in our lives. Temper out of control, use of our tongue, uh, sexual temptations. You know, but we just need to be honest with ourselves. This is, this is all part of our human reality. We're not immune from these things. And so this tension, this reality that, that we want to be holy, but we, we face the reality where, where we really are can lead to discouragement. You know, and imagine you've been trying to be holy for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. I, I was baptized in the Spirit 42 years ago. And sometimes I think about my life, it's like, you know, I keep watching the same movies. <laughs> I've seen this movie, right? This is where Dave falls down in the pit, and this is where, you know, and it's just kind of the same, same loop. Anybody else have that experience ever? All right, a couple of the older guys. Thank you. That can get discouraging. Now, some of you folks are younger folks. You think, well, yeah, old guy, but I can do it. <laughs> I think I got this. Or some of you who are more driven like me would say, yeah, I, I, there's, I got issues right now, but the next self-improvement program, <laughs> I'm really confident it's going to push me over the edge. But in fact, we need to see that these struggles, in a certain way, the failing is part of the process. It's part of the process of being made holy. You know, we go through these cycles of learning, right, where we encounter things, we have the, the usual suspects, and we struggle with them, and we get a little bit stronger and a little bit more capable, and we grow in holiness. 
more ready to bear the weight of heaven. So that's tension number one. Tension number two is the tension without. So if the first tension is, I'm not as holy as I would like to be, tension number two is, and you're not as holy as I'd like you to be either. You know, in community, really what we're trying to do in community is pursue holiness together. That's one way you could look at life in Christian community. We're pursuing holiness together. Our lives are woven together. And part of what we do, therefore, is encourage one another, and we share openly and honestly and transparently with one another. It's a beautiful thing. It's a really beautiful thing. But we also need to see there's a tension here as well. We find out that our brothers and sisters are not as holy. We encounter their own failings as well. How many of you have heard of a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Ever, a lot of people. Bonhoeffer was a, a theologian, lived uh, just before World War II, was killed during World War II. But he wrote a book on Christian community, a very short little book. It's called Life Together, Gemeinsames Leben, in German. And uh, it's a very accessible book, especially for a German theologian. You can, you can actually read it. Um, but in the opening chapter of this book, he, t he talks about this concept of the wish dream of Christian community. The wish dream of Christian community. And this book came out of his experience of living together in community with, with a group of seminarians in a secret seminary hidden away from the Nazis just before World War II. And they had this very intense, common, communal life. And uh, again, he coined this term of the wish dream. What does that mean? Well, people often come to Christian community with a wish dream of how it will go. Right? This is going to be great. People will love and accept me here. I will finally find my place of perfect service. I will be fully understood, fully accepted. And I will be fully healed by my brothers and sisters' perfect love for me. Now, doesn't that sound good? <laughs> Sounds really good. Problem is, it's a wish dream. It's a wish dream. You know, and often I see when people first come into community, they, they experience, and <laughs> don't get me wrong, I'm all for Christian community. <laughs> I've given my life to it. It's been transformative for me personally. But we need to see it for the reality of what it is. But sometimes new people come and say, oh, this is perfect. This is just what I've always been looking for. The I found the perfect spot for me. Well, in reality, community... Christian community is an assembly of people in process, imperfect sinners, and jars of clay with the strangest assortment of cracks. All right? Strangest assortment of humanity. Sooner or later in our life and experiencing community, we'll be disappointed, we'll be burned, we'll be disillusioned by our brothers and sisters. Somebody will say something. We'll propose an idea that gets rejected. Someone will overlook our contribution. And that disappointment then can lead to criticism, leading to judgment, and maybe even to separation. 
Let me give you one quote from Bonhoeffer. I just love this quote. When his ideal picture, his wish dream is destroyed, he sees the community itself going to smash. I think that's a British translation, but it's lovely, isn't it? So he becomes first an accuser of his brothers, then an accuser of God, and finally, the despairing accuser of himself. So, what is to be done? Well, Bonhoeffer's advice, and mine as well, is that we need to, to strangle these wish dreams, uh, to shatter them, and to embrace our life together in brothers and sisters in community for the reality of what it is. It's something like a place where we learn the ways of heaven through a process of dealing with real problems, with real people, we die to ourselves, we swear to our own hurt, and we stand in faithfulness in full view of the fact of the brokenness of our brothers and sisters. Again, we're not in community because we're all saints. We're community because we're humble enough to, to need help on the journey where people are being made holy through our lives together in Christ. Was that a downer? It's reality, but it's actually very positive when it sits with you for a little bit. Okay, last section, what then must we do? And just a few thoughts here, some, some observations from my own life. First, I think in this whole process and journey, uh, we need to accept and embrace that God has us right where he wants us. He's in control of this process of our becoming holy, and he really knows what he's doing. Now, my experience is I tend to rage. I tend to rage at my condition. I want a different path. <laughs> different pathway, different journey, different people to be on the journey with me, right? I'd like, I'd like a different movie. And God says to me, I've got you right where I want you. I've got you right where I want you. When I was working, I had a commute. I had to get up in the 5 o'clock in the morning, be on the road by 5.45, a little over an hour to get to my job. So I had to pray in the car. And it was Michigan. And it was cold. And it was dark. And it was lonely in my car. And I had to pray, right? And I would rage against that. I said, God, you know, why can't I have a, you know, a nice prayer room, a guitar, a cup of coffee, some oatmeal? <laughs> And some days I'd be out there on the freeways, you know, and just trying to pray. I was like, man, I can hardly open my mouth. God says, that, you know, I've got you right where I, I want you. Find me here. Find me here on this pathway, this place you're at. Or sometimes, again, when I was working, I, I would rage against my vocation. It's like, like, why couldn't I be like a full-time Christian worker, right? I could be out there evangelizing, preaching to the lost, 
Uh, instead, I'm stuck in this meeting with all these people. Go figure. And once again, that voice came to me, I've got you right where I want you. Serve me here. Sometimes I would rage against my personal gifting. Right? If only I had more gifts. If I had the wisdom of a Jim Kolar <laughs> or the, uh, the holiness of a Gordy DeMarais or uh, some other good servant. Oh, what I could do for your kingdom. Sounds like a Dr. Seuss book, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, what I could do for you, for your kingdom. Just give me more gifts. And once again, I've got you right where I want you. Serve me here. This is the pathway of holiness that I put you in. And so we need to accept and embrace the pathway of holiness of our lives. It's a process. We're not in control. God will make us holy through it, and he has us right where he wants us. Now, a little bit of good news. The process involves miraculous help. So I don't know if you can see the cartoon very clearly, but you've got these kind of like two mad scientists at the blackboard, and they've got this long equation and process, process flow. And the one guy, you know, is pointing to the, the middle of the screen says, and then a miracle occurs, right, in the middle of this equation. And uh, that's kind of like our lives, right? Sometimes miracles occur. Right? We're, we're out there grinding on our process, and working through things. And God sometimes just comes and brings us to the next level. Miracles happen in our journey of holiness. Sometimes he just carries us over things or something we've been struggling with for a long time. And so, you know, I, I know I sound like, a, again, a corporate nerd here, process and grinding it out and cycles of learning and all that kind of stuff. Sometimes God just lifts us and he makes us holy through his intervention. So, as we think about our lives of holiness, we need to cry out to God, cry out to him for help and uh, miraculous interventions as well. Okay, finally, grace for the journey. And here, just to close, I just want to remind us that there's grace for this journey of holiness. You know, grace, it's such a beautiful word, isn't it? I still remember when I, was, when I was a kid, my mom explained it to me. She said, grace is unmerited favor towards sinners. Isn't that a great little definition? Unmerited, it's unearned, it's undeserved, it's, it's favor from God toward us. Underneath it all, there's grace. And I was struck recently by this passage from Matthew about the yoke, Matthew eleven, twenty-eight to 30. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary, burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. It's a familiar passage to many of us, I'm sure. 
But on the surface, that doesn't sound like a very gracious word, does it? It doesn't sound like good news. It sounds like a paradox. Feeling weary? Heavy laden? <laughs> Take on my yoke. Right? Does that sound like you want something else, right? Feeling, you know, take a nap, right? <laughs> Feeling weary? Come on, you know, have some oatmeal. No, he says, feeling weary? Take on my yoke. Feels like a paradox. But you know, the Christian life is full of paradoxes like this. You want to live? Learn how to die. You want to be free? Become a slave. You want to be first? Try to be last. Want a great life? Take up your cross. Feeling tired, weary? Take on a yoke. Right? So there's this, Jesus often taught with paradox. Well, why do I think this is actually a very gracious word? Why is there grace here? We need to look closely at what Jesus says. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. We all like to make, take yokes on of our own making, don't we? We like to take our own, we design yokes for ourselves and burdens. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He says, take my yoke upon you. There's a picture of a yoke here. What strikes you about that picture? It's not a trick question. Two holes. Two holes. There's two holes in a yoke. And Jesus says, take my yoke on and learn from me. And the image here is how they used to train oxen. If you had a young ox who's kind of wild and immature and, and untrained, you'd put him in the yoke with a steady, mature, solid ox. You'd yoke them together, and the young ox would, would figure it out, right? He'd learn how to be, be like his, uh, his older brother. And that's the picture Jesus gives us here. Yoke's got two holes, and it's a very intimate invitation. He's saying, come on, take on my yoke. Learn from me. He's inviting us into a very uh, personal and intimate relationship. He's not laying a burden on us to change ourselves. Get holy. He's saying, come, come, take on my yoke. And he walks alongside us. And in, in this journey of holiness, we have a very gracious companion. So, brothers and sisters, thank you for your attention. Just to close, not, we're not here because we're saints. Rather, we're, being, we're here living our lives in community to become holy together. God has us right where he wants us. He's got us in this process of becoming holy. So let's come to that live coal, to the one that we can embrace. Let's take on his yoke and learn from him. Amen.